Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On My Mind. I can't believe it's already the third week of January. Literally, Valentine's Day is next month. I walked into a TJ Maxx with my roommate the other day, and I was like, how are there already Valentine's Day stuff out? It's all just the beginning of January. Nope, it was like fully January 15th. So, that's felt kind of crazy, but that also means that this week is another episode week, so I'm very excited to record this one for you. I have a really interesting topic to talk about, but before that, I wanted to start this episode like how I start all of them, with just talking about what's been on my mind lately. So you've probably heard a lot of approaches and podcasts and Instagram graphics about New Year's resolutions. And this podcast episode today is not about New Year's resolutions. I'm just going to say that for starters. But New Year's resolutions and the topic of them every year makes me think about goal setting, even though I'm not a New Year's resolutions person. And I'm going to talk about why. So New Year's resolutions brings up the idea that January is the one month during the year in which you're supposed to start new things and do them for the entire year, which is great. I love the idea of starting new things. My problem with it though is what is so damn special about January? Like if January is so special, we're just saying December is a waste of time and we should not start anything new in December and just wait until January to start new things. And I hear this quote a lot that talks about how you're not going to become a certain version of yourself all of a sudden. You need to show up as that person consistently and then you'll become that person. And I believe that wholeheartedly when it comes to goal setting because if you are in December sitting there like a couch potato and then January 1st you decide you're going to start working out. There is no real difference between you on December 25th and January 1st that's going to make a huge difference in the kind of person that will go to the gym consistently. December 25th, December 26th are just as good days to start those things and so My opinion on goal setting is that's something we should constantly be doing and constantly re-reflecting on. Have we made progress towards the goals that we want to achieve? Have we had new goals that we want to achieve recently? And so something I use New Year's to do now is reflect on things that I've been meaning to achieve and reprioritize rather than just telling myself I'm going to attack 10 new things and happen to achieve all of them at the same time because that is unrealistic. I listened to this podcast recently that was talking about how in our 20s we lose the idea of discipline as a concept to focus only on our quote-unquote well-being and that we want all this free time in the world and that'll bring us happiness. However, in my opinion, I think that just breeds laziness because if we have all the time in the world and no discipline, we're really just going to sit there and not actually do anything. And I'll link the podcast below that talked about this because it was really great. But what that brought to mind for me when it came to... New Year's was how I want to reprioritize and refocus on having more discipline in my life. I think it's very, very easy to fall into a routine of having no routine. And in this era of my life, I'll be more impressed with myself if I actually start having a consistent routine for myself, settling into life in New York City, being able to actually run more often, etc. I started making these changes last month rather than deciding January 1st was the day I really wanted to go for them. And that also made me think about how 
some of the things I wanted to reprioritize aren't super hard numeric goals uh, because that's another really hard thing to do when it comes to New Year's. Like, I'm going to do this reading of 30 books this year. I did that last year. And when I wasn't able to meet that number, it made me really upset. So for reprioritizations, I wanted to think more about what are some focuses of mine in life that I actually want to have and that are more broad, more general things. So some of mine in general are less planning and more taking action. I have always been the kind of person that will just sit on my ass and make thousands of lists and never actually do anything on them. And this year, I thought about how I've always been that way. And I want to more consistently think about doing things rather than just saying things. And hear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that that's something that maybe I'm just going to start doing all of a sudden. It will take a lot of time. And 2023 may not be the year where this goes perfectly. However, I'm reprioritizing the fact that this is something I've thought about doing for a really long time. And now I want to focus in again on making that happen. And I started that again, not just on January 1st. Another one is saying less, doing more, goes hand in hand. And the third one, which I actually did a speech about a few years ago, funnily enough, is talking about how passions are a lot more work than they actually seem like. And just because I'm passionate about something doesn't mean that it's going to come really, really easy to me. So I want to make sure I have that thought in my head for when I'm thinking about, you know, doing photography, even doing this podcast, recording videos, writing emails, becoming successful in all the artistic aspects of my career. Just because there's a lot of things I do enjoy about them doesn't mean that they're just the easiest things out there to do. And I want to make sure in my head, I'm fully aware of the fact that when I'm investing time in things that I'm passionate about, that they're not always going to be super fun, that they're going to be effort, they're going to be work. And A, I should treat it as such sometimes and be serious about those things. But B, understand that when I'm putting time into these things, that's something I should be proud of. I'm not wasting my time by trying to invest in things that I am passionate about because those are lots of skills that I'm learning and I'm gaining and it's not just a cute little fun thing I'm doing. They can become more serious things and they possibly are. So those are some things that I've been thinking about focusing on a lot more as of late. And I encourage you when it comes to thinking about New Year's resolutions, perhaps it just might need to be a reprioritization for you and you don't have to make it the most insane, stressful thing of setting thousands and thousands of new goals. So we'll see how that goes for me and I hope something like that goes well for you as well. The next thing is on this podcast, I do some highs, lows, and mids of what has been happening in the past two weeks since the previous episodes. So I'm excited to talk about these ones. So the high from recently is that I've been seeing a lot more of my friends since they've come back to New York City, and I've actually been pretty good about making plans with them. This past week has been an absolute whirlwind, just catching up with my friends as they've come back from the holidays to New York City, and I've really enjoyed going out and talking to them and hanging out. It's been just so much fun actually exploring the city with other people. I do like exploring the city in solitude, but there's something so special about sharing those moments with other people. Another thing 
is actually finishing a project that I started. If you know me, I am absolutely the queen of unfinished tasks and unfinished projects. Like, seriously, I have such a bad habit of starting new things and never finishing a damn one of them. But this past weekend, I actually took time aside to cross some things off my list that I've really been meaning to. And one of those was finishing a painting project for this gallery wall in our apartment. And those that's one of those things that, yes, painting is really, really fun. And it is a hobby of mine. But it is effort. It is work in its own shape or form. It's not just doing nothing. And that's something I need to invest time in and invest energy in to do. So I'm glad I made the space to do that because now I'm really happy with how the paintings turned out and how our apartment's gonna look. We also went out and got plants and got pots and that was a whole ordeal and it took many, many hours to do. But again, I'm happy with that turned out. So in that vein, I really hope that when you take time out of your life, you know, maybe decorate your room or do a painting for your room or something like that that's something that you're doing that is really special that takes time out of your life and you should give yourself credit for actually putting in the effort to do those things for yourself so shout out to you shout out to me for doing that a low that i felt this past week was i felt pretty anxious about completing small annoying tasks and they just build up in my backlog of life and i think this comes with becoming an adult like I have recently been having to submit like medical claims return library books I organize all of my expenses on a spreadsheet making sure rent is paid on time etc etc replying to emails and those again all very necessary things to do but I put them off a lot of the times and I felt really anxious about completing them so I haven't really figured out a solution for it per se but I just wanted to mention that that's something that's been happening. I know I need to actually start taking charge of them and becoming an adult, but it's important to, you know, A, give myself a little bit of grace because obviously there's lots of things going on in my life as I've just talked about for the past several minutes. And sometimes being able to just put that in the world and say, hey, this is something I'm struggling with is a good catalyst to actually being able to fix it going forward because now I'm a lot more aware of it. So there's that. And for mid things, this is actually the topic that I really want to talk about for today's episode. So this all spurred with the fact that I needed to cut out dairy, according to my doctor, because of various health issues in hopes that it would make it better for me. So for those of you who don't know, I am already vegetarian and cheese was low-key three-fourths of my personality. So it was a little bit of a hard pill to swallow when my doctor told me, hey, you can't be eating cheese anymore you can't be having dairy and it's for your health to keep yourself healthy not specifically like oh cut out dairy to lose weight but it was affecting other aspects of my health so i've found you know a couple of good vegan restaurants that satisfy the salty tangy craving when i really need it but other than that it's actually forced me to fall back in love with cooking, which I thoroughly have missed. I've loved experimenting with spices, new flavors, and since sometimes I can't find what I'm craving in a restaurant or can't grab like just a random slice of pizza, I've been spending some time at home getting back into cooking and in a way that's made me feel a lot more independent and capable. So in the end, it's been somewhat of a blessing in disguise, and I'm really glad to have taken this challenge on. And this change is what honestly inspired today's topic, which is decolonizing veganism. So I wanted to start this off with a bit of a backstory on my history being vegetarian. So I've grown up being vegetarian from when I was very, very young because my parents are from South India, and 
I'll probably do an entire episode at some point on the representation of Indian food in Western culture, but for simplicity's sake, I'll explain some of what I grew up eating. So my mom has always been an excellent cook, but specifically she makes a lot of South Indian food. So some examples of that are guti vankaya, which is stuffed eggplant, and she commonly would use cashew cream to make curries thicker. So for those of you who don't know, cashews make things thicker when you grind them and the cream is often used in a lot of curries and in a lot of videos you'll see on like tiktok and instagram they always talk about putting cashew cream as an alternative for like alfredo and sauce and using nutritional yeast to give it the cheesy flavor however growing up i never even considered that was something she did as a vegetarian alternative it was the norm to me i just thought oh this makes this thicker not oh, she's doing this instead of using heavy cream. Because to be honest, that's not even what she was thinking. I asked her about this recently and she was like, that's just what I do. That was very interesting to me because there's a common misconception that everything is an alternative for something else. But this was just a way of life. In addition, she always used a base of tomatoes, onions, and spices. Sometimes it would be ground in a blender, sometimes it wouldn't. And my diet primarily consisted consisted of lentils or dal, which is a combination of lentils and spices, as well as beans. I like to describe Indian food as vegetables being the main focus. And it was always an art how it was just covered in spices. And I never felt like I was just eating raw broccoli, which people assume that's what I eat all the time, but not really the case. So it wasn't even until I got to college that I actually noticed what being vegetarian, a world where people commonly ate meat even felt like, I realized that vegan and vegetarian food was pretty misrepresented in modern media. And this was because I didn't even start really eating out or going to restaurants that much until college. I usually just would eat at home. Sometimes I'd go out and get a milkshake in high school, you know, whatever. But a lot of people in college, even my POC, personal color friends, thought I really only ate salads, (laughs) Um, which I don't blame them for thinking that because that's what the media represented at the time. But again, I hadn't really felt this way until college. And in my opinion, or actually a very common opinion, it was a very white take on what vegetarian culture is because that is what is portrayed in modern media. And that makes veganism or being vegetarian have a really bad representation overall especially for people who are from cultures that actually focus on a lot of taste and that tastes primarily involving being non-vegetarian having a lot of spices looking at someone who you think is vegan or vegetarian it's like well i grew up eating meat that was like flavored in tons of amazing ways what the hell do you eat you know So it was really complicated to actually explain that to them because they had no idea. Other assumptions were a vegetarian diet was something that's always making up for the fact that there was no meat. And in my opinion, that was not really the case when I grew up. Um, I never felt like my parents were making up for the fact that there was not meat on our plates because my mom never grew up eating meat, even though my dad used to. And... I never felt like I was missing out because that was something I was never missing, if that makes sense. So to me, being vegetarian felt very normal, nutritious, and a way to connect with my Indian roots. I became really tired of feeling like my life was an alternative out of the ordinary and not just my normal existence. There was so many times that I wished I could just cook what my mom did in college But I grew up during high school even and throughout parts of college wishing I ate more mainstream foods and never actually bothered to connect with my culture for fear of being too exotic, for fear of having to explain. I've felt embarrassed about it my whole life and I started eating what was mainstream. I'd go for, you know, mac and cheese. I would get like a vegan burger. I would ignore going to... Indian restaurants. I wouldn't even cook Indian food at our apartment. And that made me lose touch with my culture. I realized that down the line towards the end of college. I would try to eat food that was vegetarian or vegan and cook it myself. But every time I tried to make it, 
it just felt very distant in terms of flavor, in terms of what I considered home. And I realized that being vegetarian to me, it's a, of course different for a lot of people. Being vegetarian to me wasn't just about being vegetarian in terms of you know eating plants and beans, but it was how I felt connected to my parents, how I felt connected to my culture, especially as someone who grew up as an immigrant child. It's really difficult to actually feel like you belong because in a lot of ways you feel like you don't i grew up in america my entire life i can understand telugu but i can't actually speak it perfectly fluently and it was really difficult because this was one of the only things i felt like connected me to my parents to my grandparents and i didn't realize that until i started losing that connection to it and that was very difficult to realize so i started learning more about how to actually cook indian food properly and like i said when i had to cut out dairy recently being able to cook indian food again south indian food specifically from andhra pradesh which is where my parents are from made me feel a lot more at home unknowingly and that was very special to me to actually be able to do that i'm sure a lot of you can resonate in similar ways whether you're vegan or vegetarian or not the way that food represents culture for a lot of people and that's why the idea that white veganism exists which i will be talking about a lot through this episode disrupts the connection that people have with their culture and veganism and just takes the idea of you know being vegan and disregards everything else in terms of intersectionality indigenous people's lifestyles etc so speaking of white veganism what actually is it so as i've been talking about veganism is not actually something that's new Donald Watson in the 1940s coined the term veganism and this is when people think veganism started but that's not really true. So he named it as a way for talking about ending the harming of animals. However, he himself did not invent the culture. Uh, a lot of white vegans actually consider the movement to have been started as more of a western movement, very pro animal rights, but they don't actually acknowledge the ancient Indian and eastern influences who quite actually were so many years ahead of this curve. So Donald Watson was co-founder of the Vegan Society and I quote, he said that veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude as far as possible and practical all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing or any purpose. And he goes on to talk about how it's promoting the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of humans, animals, and our environment. So this is in a dietary way, even in the materials we use, etc. So well, he didn't start veganism. So many, 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 many years ago, when the world started, people existed. There wasn't really like choices to go vegan per se. It was very much based on the availability of plants. In fact, most of us are able to get fruits and nuts and leaves through our body without actually having much trouble. But a lot of us do have trouble with consistency on milk, alcohol, and starches. So this is something that was said by Rob Dunn, who's a biologist at North Carolina State University. So as you can see, those three things, fruits, nuts, and leaves, are something we've always been able to actually have. But we turned to eating animals out of necessity, and that's when we began to develop canines. So, for example, chimpanzees actually get less than 2% of their diet from meat, while 48% actually comes from fruit. So that shows that from the beginning, we didn't necessarily start eating meat. And that leads us into indigenous veganism veganism for more of a religious and moral content context so pythagoras you know the greek dude pythagorean theorem he said alas what a wickedness to swallow flesh into our own flesh to fatten our greedy bodies by cramming in other bodies to have one living creature fed by the death of another 
a little bit dramatic, not going to lie, because as we know, everyone back then just talked exactly like this. But the idea, you know, stays the same in terms of in a religious and moral context, harming animals was evil. And this is interesting because people don't assume that a lot of cultures in Europe or even in the MENA region uh, were actually very vegan friendly, but they, they truly were. Even to this day, a lot of Greece, the Mediterranean, Israel has a lot of primarily vegetarian options for people to have because that was what the diet could consist of. If you think of like very commonplace falafel, pita bread, those are all things that are made from like chickpeas, flour, etc. But specifically, some place that had the most influence on veganism and vegetarianism is India. Many, many, many cultures have a cultural relationship with protecting animals and in a lot of ways doesn't have that much to do with the cuisine or actually eating the food. So this actually applies to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Jainism taught ahimsa, which is nonviolence, especially towards animals. And Jainism is actually the most strict out of these three. And it teaches you to, when you're hurting others, you're actually hurting yourself. So this all happened 2,500 years ago. Like, when I say veganism is not new, this is what I mean. And to this day, 23 to 37% of the population of India is actually vegetarian. In a lot of ways, even people who don't believe in the religion have the religion so ingrained in the culture of India itself that people are just vegetarian and they don't even know why. That is just the way that their parents have grown up, that the culture around them has been shaped by the fact that the religion has such a large influence on the society. For example, Mughal culture uh, had a really huge influence on a city called Hyderabad and that has influenced a lot of the architecture there. Even a lot of the people who are there are still Muslim. And you can just see those influences cropping in and out of the culture, even if you aren't Muslim yourself. And that was the influence they had on the architecture. Hinduism influenced a lot of the diet of people in India to this day. So Hinduism is widely known for traditions that say that the killing of cattle is a sin, and it has a lot more connections to early vegan and vegetarian diets. The Vedas are actually one of the oldest um, Hindu scriptures, and they state that all living beings share the same life force, which ends up meaning that many Hindus recognize that animals deserve equal respect to humans. So that's the backstory behind what the vegan and vegetarian culture in India actually stemmed from. And and this point in time, a lot of people don't know why that happened, but this is the history behind it, which I find fascinating because even though it stemmed from religion, it's gone a lot more beyond that and just into culture and society. Another few areas in which religion and culture have seeped into the way that diets were formed in this period of time were some countries that people don't really expect when you think modern day, like China and Japan, because people think that in a lot of East Asian culture, it's primarily only meat focused, which is true. There are a lot of meat options that are offered. And in a lot of ways, that is the main part of a lot of modern day Chinese and Japanese cuisine. But at its core, because of religion, there are some vegan and vegetarian options that were very common back then. So for example, there were a lot of Buddhist monks who would imitate eating pork or lamb with even gluten or soy. And this was back when, you know, alternatives weren't even a buzzword. Like veganism wasn't a buzzword. It was part of the religion and that influenced their lifestyle. In Japan, there was natto, which is fermented soybeans, which are very healthy and plant-based. The traditional cuisine in Okinawa, Japan, for example, has very little meat or dairy. It's up to 95% plant-based with a very large focus on items like sweet potatoes that gives people some of the healthiest hearts on the planet, which I find truly fascinating. If you look up some of the really healthy cuisines in the world, Japan is always up there with one of them. 
Now, that's not to say that other cuisines are unhealthy. I believe that there are very healthy options in every cuisine and very unhealthy options in every cuisine. But J- Japanese cuisine kind of slayed the game. Like, I don't know what they did, but they just balance everything and it has perfect taste. I don't really understand how, but I love it. So shout out to them. A lot of cuisines also had a lot of focus on starch. Now I said earlier that our bodies don't really process starch that well in comparison to fruits, nuts, etc. But the bones of Roman gladiators show that they did actually eat a mostly vegetarian diet of barley, wheat, and beans, which I truly find fascinating because I swear all of us have a gluten intolerance these days, but these Roman gladiators were on some other shit, so shout out to them. (laughs) One of the cuisines that I found the most fascinating personally, that was another thing that spurred me to actually discuss this topic, was a lot of South African and Ethiopian traditional cuisine that are primarily actually vegan. They centered around staple foods like millet and rice, peas, okras, hot peppers, and yams. Uh, A lot of this actually reminded me of what I actually ate growing up because I grew up eating lentils. They would use coconut milk and their version of red chili powder called berbere versus me using cashew cream and our version of red chili powder. We would have fried or steamed lentil cakes called idlis while they would use or eat fufu Uh, we would eat dosa which is a fried crepe versus injera and both cuisines have very in common the concept of rice and beans and a vegetable dish so a lot of ethiopian food and south african food is something that i find very familiar now i don't know everything about this cuisine obviously because I myself am not Ethiopian, but it has been something that I've enjoyed learning and researching a lot more about with the fact that I have Google right in front of me all the time and lots of people to ask. In addition to the food itself, there were a lot of traditions associated with these cultures that I find myself relating to. For example, eating with my hands or sitting and eating on the floor. This goes to show that the culture of being vegan or being vegetarian allows you not only to connect with some of the core items that your ancestors cooked with, like these okra, yams, certain other vegetables, but also some of the culture that your grandparents, their great-grandparents, your ancestors actually had. And I find that very, very special. So black vegans have actually existed beyond these recent developments of veganism. And I find that very special that in a lot of ways, veganism is becoming more and more predominant in the Black community because they're one of the largest growing demographics to adopt a vegan or plant-based lifestyle than non-Black Americans. And it's allowing them to connect a lot with these traditions like eating with their hands and a lot of different types of food that we don't commonly see in portrayed in white media like again okra so this has existed beyond the recent developments of veganism like i said because there were people called the rastafarians known as rastas for short and this still exists it's a spiritual practice that's very rich in political ideology and has a large reverence for the earth a lot of poc and african tiktokers exist now providing a space to connect with the culture through spices and it's really amazing to see how veganism starting in the black community again and having a resurfacing has trended itself over to social media and provided a space for people to connect with their culture once again and have it grow so rapidly and i find that truly very special because it has existed for many many years but i'm glad that people are able to actually reconnect with this again Even in Europe, the famous romantic poet Percy Shelley would argue for vegetarianism on ethical grounds. He called for abstinence from animal animal food and liquors, which I find hilarious because those two things, for some reason, are always considered evil together. Like, it's never just one or the other, it's both. And I think that's really funny. So being vegetarian was actually a large class issue in 19th century England because working class Britons couldn't actually afford 
regular meat-based meals and that force them into vegetarian diets. I find this truly fascinating because the meat versus vegetarian diet has always had really high class implications and wealth implications. And I'm going to dig into why right now. And this is a reverse of what people think that eating a more meat-based diet can be cheaper in a lot of aspects compared to eating vegetarian but that's largely because the representation in media of what a vegetarian or vegan diet looks like isn't actually accurate it's portrayed to be very expensive in a lot of ways with the materials and food that's available like for example plant-based alternatives and terms of soy beyond meat etc like those are very expensive like for sure but there are cheaper foods that can allow you to have a very healthy nutritious vegan or vegetarian diet however people aren't aware of this so it's still very common misconception that it'll always be more expensive to eat vegan or vegetarian which turns people away from their culture and their roots a lot of the times obviously in England and in Britain, connecting to their culture wasn't as much of an issue as it is with a lot of people of color. But regardless, it was still a class issue. There was a large decline in the plant-based diet in Europe, however, when colonizers would force indigenous people to farm commercially, which led to a lot more animals, but a lot less indigenous crops. So meat was still a sign of wealth, however, however, Plant-based diets were no longer the norm. Meat was a sign of wealth, ended up becoming the modern American diet, and was a really large staple on every meal. Every meal revolved around it, still revolves around it, and became its own culture. So all these previous versions of veganism that I've pretty much talked about this entire time had pretty much been forgotten. This has recently led to decades of U.S. agricultural policies becoming overwhelmingly favorable of a meat, dairy, and corn diet, which cause a lot of Americans to load up on fatty, processed, refined foods. However, the standard American diet doesn't really do well for people of color because a lot of issues in saturated fat, cholesterol, heart disease, etc. are already very heightened for racial and ethnic minorities and a more meat-based diet doesn't particularly actually allow them to solve the problems that they have with health. Overall, this entire thing is truly fascinating because, like I was saying, meat is in a lot of ways portrayed as being a sign of wealth and being able to eat it means you can afford it. However, at the same time, people think being vegan is too expensive and that's a sign of wealth. So what is actually right? That is always, again, very dependent on the media. And as you can see what I've talked about in the last few minutes, it's been flipping back and forth depending on what people think is the upper class and what people think is more lower class. And that keeps shifting with the times. So... There's still an issue these days with food deserts, for example. People don't really have the resources to A, learn about what a vegan diet is and B, being able to connect to their culture and C, don't even have the opportunity to go to a grocery store and find any of these items and they will only be able to go to this grocery store and find a lot of these meat and dairy products because that is what is being mass produced by farms and that is the only thing that is provided to them so the thing is vegetables could be more commonly produced and more commonly provided in these stores however that is not what the corporate market for food and for commercial products have actually been creating which i find truly deeply madly unfortunate so that's a whole issue that needs to be solved in order for there to be able to actually be a space in which people can connect to their culture properly. Because if there's not any sort of this food in the stores because corporations aren't allowing that to happen, how are people ever supposed to figure this shit out? Not only now is there a lack of knowledge about 
the nutritional foundation of many traditional diets, but people from non-Western cultures, who a lot of them do live in these food deserts that I've been mentioning, are pushed towards more Westernized views because they can't actually have the opportunity to find anything else. And if they're pushed towards Westernized views of health and wellness, if they do actually have the opportunity to have larger availability of food products, a lot of the times, those might not even be the ones that can allow them to cook things reminiscent of their culture. And that's also really sad. So the entire concept of food deserts is something that needs to be taken a lot more seriously because it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And this leads us to the entire story of white veganism. So the fact that culture of the past many years in America has become one where people are very heavily reliant on dairy and meat has been something people are aware of and that caused people to become more questioning of everything around them in search for a way to actually help quote-unquote the planet this is primarily in the 18 to 24 demographic and that's a trend mirrored in millennial and younger demographics throughout the world A lot of the reasons people changed their diets and became vegan were for one of these few reasons. Cultural reasons, growing up from a young age and wanting to fit in and connect with their culture more deeply, which is something that I talked about earlier. Health reasons, having an intolerance for dairy. Again, a lot of POC people face this. Morality. This one's the real kicker. Morality, which is protecting animals, climate, the planet. This third one is what a lot of white veganism focuses on. So what actually do I mean when I say white veganism? I say it when, A, not only towards white people, but the sphere of thinking that has permeated a large part of all of our general thinking about health, wellness, and being vegan slash vegetarian. Veganism is often perpetuated by very able-bodied white social media influencers. They have a large following. However, it can be traced back to the start of the vegan movement in the 1940s that I was talking about and that has a very white and affluent overarching context. The social media algorithms have taken veganism and made it something that isn't by people of color, which is where it was actually rooted from. People are actually not at the focus of veganism anymore which is crazy because food is what goes in our body how can we not be the focus of it and brands are just quick to hop on the trends for the sake of making money and not focusing on the fact that even though we are helping animals we are helping the planet we might be mistreating indigenous people we are mistreating laborers who are working in the farms and a lot of those are huge systemic issues that just because we're benefiting the planet, we're hurting others in the process. And veganism by people of color is something that should be prioritized a lot more in main spaces, but it isn't, quote, deemed popular by the algorithm because a lot of these recipes and activism isn't what white people who are a large part of a lot of social media populations in the U.S. are looking for. And that's really unfortunate because a lot of these voices are being shut down. Atmos Earth puts it really best because they say, and I quote, the growing trend of white veganism perpetuates the idea that veganism goes hand in hand with health and wealth while erasing black, indigenous, people of color from the conversation. The poster children of the movement are the ones with the most followers who in turn work with the most brands, white, able-bodied people. That is the best way to say it, in my opinion. White veganism is also another way to just describe mainstream veganism. The common problem here is that until white people think something is trendy, it seems like they created and invented it, not giving other people credit. 
And this has manifested itself in a few ways. White creators are creating or using elements of recipes from other cultures. And this is a very difficult topic because on one hand, I truly love that people are appreciating elements of other cultures. Without that, there would be no way for people to actually get others to try new cultures, try new things. Because, for example, Indian food, if Indian people don't have a voice on the platform, and if I say something about a chickpea curry that I made, and no one else follows me, then no one else will find out about this. But if a white person talks about it, they'll find out about this. So I'm glad that people are finding out about it, but I'm upset that it's not from someone who can actually speak more truthfully about the matter. So the problem that this manifests as is, for example, people will know curry as a concept, but not the intricacies of where different curries are made from. What is the difference between Japanese curry and different curries from India, curries from different states, curries from different cities? What is Curry isn't just one singular concept. It's a name for an over, overarching type of food that means different things to different people from different places. And how can some white person explain that better than I can or someone from Japan, for example. They also take techniques and the food that were created so long ago and promoting them as something new, like, for example, using cashew cream in dishes or seeing chickpea curry is a newfound thing, but there's no credit to the richer culture and history that should be integrated into the conversation. That brings up also the idea of names because a lot of creators will talk about, white creators, for example, will talk about dishes that are quote-unquote ethnic and don't give it the name that it deserves. Like chana masala, it's a dish from India with chickpeas and for simplicity's sake, different spices. There's usually a chana masala spice that is made up of lots of different spices like garam masala, cinnamon, red chili, etc. You throw in turmeric, cumin, coriander, the whole shebang. And they don't talk about the history of that. And that's a loss because people will find out about it and think it's new all of a sudden when in fact that's something that has existed for many, many years, which a large, large history and deep, deep culture. Like I was mentioning earlier, not only is the lack of ability to discuss the food itself properly a bad thing, but it also disregards it by it i mean white veganism disregards oppression against humans people of color women people with disabilities indigenous people farmers accessibility again sovereignty rights all in the name of furthering big business and capitalism now this isn't specific to just white creators on social media this is the entire vegan world realm as a whole i wish you could see me right now because i'm making a huge box with my hand there is a lot of articles that i was reading talking about how back a few years ago a lot of white vegans would go so far as comparing animal oppression to american slavery and the holocaust which completely downplays the importance of race in causing these events and it's completely insensitive to the fact that Food has a lot of racial connotations, a lot of ethnic connotations as well. And comparing it with something like the American slavery and the Holocaust literally is so awful because you're saying that by having veganism and slaughtering animals, that it's like you're slaughtering people of color, but in the same vein, just because you're saving slaughtered animals you're forgetting about all the indigenous people who are still being affected by the fact that animals are being quote-unquote saved because they have to work more hours for still being underpaid for a lot of different farms because the demand for being vegan in a white sphere has gone up and only someone who's a person of color could understand and see the problem with that statement. And however, there's a really large, large lack of representation in this global larger box of what veganism is actually 
displayed as. There's an abundance of resources of people of color who are in the vegan sphere. If you look online, just so many things pop up. But there's a lack of representation, which begs the question, how do organizations actually prioritize diversity and inclusion? So what I found is that out of 32 animal welfare organizations featured in a study, 13 organizations were found to not have a single black employee employee. And for the other 19 organizations, it was found that no more than 7% of the employees were black. Like, of course, quotes like what I was saying earlier about slavery and the Holocaust will get out if this is the kind of representation that you're seeing, because no one's going to fact check the fact that that is something that's a wrong and b misrepresenting the fact that people are still being exploited in this current day and age. It also leads to further misconceptions that veganism is something that only focuses on animal liberation and not colonization that leads to the oppression of humans as well. For example, if we take the case of Tyson and Smithfield, rather than addressing the institutions and practices that were put into place by colonizer ancestors, a lot of white vegans will opt for what is known as quote-unquote green capitalism, which is making large corporations seem good for being quote-unquote eco-friendly, even though in a lot of ways they're pushing stuff under the rug that is bad for the environment and bad for people. So Tyson and Smithfield would profit from plant-based products, but would still factory farm on the side it became nothing more than a business opportunity. Um, for example, in China, plant-based meat has grown by 14.3% per year. And in a way, again, that is a good opportunity that people are trying to be vegan. However, I don't know if everyone's considering the full sphere of the fact that it's supporting you know, perhaps a company that might not be very ethical to people still, who are still seeing it as a business opportunity rather than a cultural and worldly gain. As you can see here, everything I'm saying has something's going well, something's going badly. But first step is to start being aware of the fact that when you're talking about veganism, it's not just about the animals, it's not just about the planet, but about the human aspect as well in terms of the representation in the media, the representation of talking about indigenous voices, who are being trampled on because of the fact that they might have to farm for or a lot of their history of using the land and the way that they have lived for so many years. For example, the Mi'kmaq is an indigenous nation traditionally occupying northeastern woodlands. They have a strong emphasis on not taking more than you need. However, hunting bans have prevented them from keeping their way of life. In addition, the Inuit, with the sealskin trade that was banned by the EU in 1983, they could still hunt, but there was no longer demand for it, so they had less income. It allowed them to purchase other groceries and gas beforehand, but they didn't even hunt the seal pups that were being attacked in this ban. And they truly suffered because of this. In an attempt to be vegan and care more about animals we ended up hurting a lot of people and this has not been something that is new like from the dawn of time colonization has affected a large lot of indigenous populations and you don't hear about this that often when you're thinking about and listening to talks about veganism they just talk about the planet and the animals and nothing about this again i have another quote the sentiments surrounding white supremacy urge many white vegans to condemn any consumption of meat or animal products, period, no matter the potential cultural or spiritual motives for not being vegan. When researching for this episode, I loved the fact that I ran into a lot of these examples because a lot of these were also new learning experiences for me as well, and I hope that they can be for you too. It's important to be able to address the role of white supremacy and how it operates creating these sort of hierarchical roles because the notion of 100% cruelty products really ignores exploitation of these non-white farm workers in producing quote-unquote vegan foods. Lastly, in terms of talking about indigenous farms and farmers, 
They're really being exploited for foods they once produced and consumed fairly moderately as per the sacred agreements they would have with their land. So things like chickpeas, quinoa, avocado, cashews, coconuts, being very mass produced to meet the demands of corporate supermarkets because a lot of people are going more vegan has had this adverse effect on their communities. And it's really important to think about that when you think about where is my food coming from? Just because it's not coming from animals doesn't mean it's not other people who are being harmed in this process as well. It's been having a devastating effect on the price of plants and a devastating effect on a lot of communities as well. Before I conclude this episode, I want to talk about how a lot of Black Americans, when they find their connection again to veganism, which has been happening a lot more in recent ages, was something that I found so interesting to read about. African Americans have historically been victims of voter suppression, which takes away the ability to advocate for health care, like I was talking about earlier, since dairy and meat really had like an adverse effect on a lot of people's lifestyles. And being able to connect to vegan food, they were able to show others that you can have a normal dining experience that just happens to be plant-based and eating vegetables doesn't mean that you're giving up on a lot of Black American culture, which is soul food that was a whole nother episode that I can really talk about there. And by introducing people to veganism, even though they've grown up on a very soul food heavy westernized diet, if the vegan food is connect cooked with the same flair, it can actually be a really great gateway for meat eaters to incorporate these kinds of plant-based foods into their lifestyle and connect with their cultures from their ancestors from many, many years ago. This quote I found was really great. But I find joy in knowing that in embracing veganism, I am inheriting their culinary knowledge. By resisting some of the many forms of oppression we endure, freeing us to write our own story moving forward. I found this truly great because to many, soul food does have a rich history in African-American culture and to this person's loved ones, they seemed like a martyr sacrificing the quote-unquote finger-licking goodness of food for supposed quote-unquote health and wellness. And I really love how they were able to find this connection to their culture again. I'll link this article in the description if you're interested in reading more about it. In conclusion, veganism is a lot more complicated than what you may think it was. I know maybe thinking about listening to this episode, you might think that you would have found a little bit more clarity about it, but I think it's still a very complicated subject. It's not just an opportunity to view food and health in a better light. It is an opportunity to connect with culture, to become more ethically aware of injustices to our society, to allow yourself to have more compassion for indigenous communities we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of racial injustice in this movement and then actually move towards dismantling this oppression. Like I said, I myself learned a shit ton from researching for this episode and how beyond just me being Indian, connecting to my roots, other people also have various practices of connecting to their roots, to people, animals, and culture in the process. So some steps that I'm trying to take going forward are being more aware of buying mass-produced vegan products. I don't think this is, can easily be stopped uh, because there's a lot of barriers to entry in buying non-mass-produced products in terms of pricing. But knowing A, that that is a problem, and B, trying to find other ways in which you can buy products that are more ethically sourced in terms of the way that they affect humans is really good because you'll be less performative and you're aware of consumption in regards to capitalism, people, and farming practices. Two, understanding the historical culture of meals. It can be very uncomfortable to not know everything about what you're eating when you're cooking it or when you're seeing other people make it, walking into a restaurant and not knowing the name. But there is a lot of power in names. And the fact that names hold so much power and so much history is truly beautiful. Three, not imposing veganism as a way of life. By this episode, I don't mean for you 
particularly to become vegan. I know that that's not the path, the journey for everybody, because for a lot of people, eating meat is a large part of their culture, a large part of their diet, and I won't discount that. However, it's important if you are vegan or if you are eating, period, which people do, to educate yourself on the history of your culture and the history of the diet that you're eating because there's always so much to unpack there. For me specifically, there's a huge stereotype that anyone who eats vegan, vegetarian, or plant-based wants you, you the listener, to live that way. And I have seen people be very pushy um, with the stereotype to be vegan or eat vegan. And over the last few years, it's become less pushy, but it's still not a perfect representation of what veganism is in the media. Again, people don't understand the cultural significance, just sharing meals without history of activism or personal welfare. So if veganism is really about caring about others, I want people to be educated on the history about it and actually embrace that history. So although there are many people who are like that, there's an equal amount of people who aren't. And I encourage you to be one of those people who does want to understand the history behind it. So all I'm asking is that you listen and try to learn something because it does hurt when people just say, I can't believe you don't eat meat or I don't understand your culture or why would you do it that way? Or why do you care what happens beyond just the animals? Learn about your own biases regarding this matter and challenge yourself. So with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of On My Mind. As you can tell, there was a lot. All of the resources that I used will be linked in the description below. And I can't wait to hear from you and see you guys next week.